Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by myself, sommelier Jill Mott, and radio host Emily Reese. Today we're going to talk about reconstituted things. So I'm going to talk about a piece of old classical music that was rewritten, and you're going to talk about... Reconstituted wine, which we won't be drinking, but we'll be talking about. We'll be drinking other things. <laughs> Sounds good. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Gilmont. Why, hello, Emily Reese. How's it going today? Uh, it's going pretty well. How are you? I'm good, yeah. Reconstitution came to us, mm-hmm. the idea for this episode this on this podcast, last week when we were listening to Vivaldi. Yes. Four seasons. Yes. And you were like, oh my gosh, have you heard this version? Well, no. It's because you asked about what Autumn was used for. Uh, or maybe it was a winter movement. I can't remember which one we looked up to see that it was the theme song for the chef's table. Oh, that's right. And as yep. soon as I heard that theme song, I knew it was this ver- this new version of, of Vivaldi because uh, you're right. Because yeah. chef's yeah. table totally does, and it does. It's it's like sounds. It is just like it, but not. Yep. <laughs> so you were you were like, this isn't. Wait, hold on. And then we went yeah. and listened through yeah. that movement, and we were like, well. Okay, episode idea next yep. week. Yep, yep. So, so it works out really well. I kind of have thought of this as a companion episode in a lot of ways to the one we did uh, where I talk about blockbusters. We talk about blockbusters and I talked about Vivaldi's Four Seasons. So we're actually going to listen to the same movements too, just to kind of keep keep a little consistency there. Mine is not at all a piggyback on the right. last <laughs> issue or last episode. Mine is more... I. We didn't really talk much about these concepts of reconstituting wine when we talked about, you know, we had a episode that we talked about adulteration and, yeah. you know, just the adjusting of wine, additives and so forth, and the difference between conventional and natural wine. And this is going to talk specifically about how your wine can be taken apart and put back together, Neat. which is like not something I usually, I say usually. Some, that's something I want to drink. So I brought something I do want to drink that's made in a, a natural vein. Um, awesome. And that we'll be drinking alongside talking about spinning cones. Fantastic. So let's start off with what inspired this in the first place. Let's listen to the opening of this TV show that you love, or I don't know if yes. you loved it or not. You yes. watched it. I so. actually think it's a pretty great TV show. I'm not really much for series, and there's so many it's cooking Netflix, shows I yeah. don't yeah, I don't care about. But Chef's Table is a really, it's most of the episodes are really well done, and some of them highlight um, you know, people that have come from not a lot of means to become some pretty incredible chefs with visions. So yeah, I'd highly recommend checking it out if you like food and if you like Vivaldi. Yeah, sounds very similar to the way Vivaldi wrote it initially. There are really subtle differences in this particular rendition of it that composer Max Richter did. You can hear he drops beats here and there, so you're like right here especially. Emily's talking about the the nuances of the movement and I'm looking at the food yeah. and like, <laughs> being like, wow, look at that plating. Wow. That looks like stressful service. So that's the first movement of the winter concerto, which we listened to in that Blockbusters episode because I love how Vivaldi um, evokes ice and cold in in that particular movement because that's what the piece is about. But anyway, it it just made us want to hear this. uh, It made me want to talk more about this piece that Max Richter wrote. Now, Max Richter is a composer uh, from Germany, and he decided uh, not that long ago in 2011 to rewrite these pieces, but organically in that he's using material, obviously, that Vivaldi 
wrote, and that's how he's just reworked it, and it's it's amazingly beautiful. So, uh, so let's just do a little side by side if that's yeah, okay. Please. We'll listen to a little bit of the winter as it was written, and then we'll hear again that what was used then for the chef's table sure. intro. thinking anybody in my profession is going to be like, that's chef's table. So he basically takes it from instead of being in 2-4 or whatever, whether it's in 2-4 or 2-2 or 4-5, I'd have to look at the score, but, uh, and he makes it in 7 instead. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 1, 2, 3, mm-hmm. 4, 5, 6, 7, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, which what about is cool. The, what about the beginning? Where the, can we listen to the, can we compare back and forth the screeching violins? Because that's the, pretty so, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's the original. It sounds like more almost like not ha- like haphazard. It doesn't sound as chiseled as the, you know. Well, part of that is because the soloist that we just heard here, Elizabeth Volfish, is playing a Baroque violin. So oh, okay. she's using gut strings. Oh. And right. in this version. Daniel Hope is the violinist, and the, it's the uh, um, concert house camera, concert house chamber orchestra from Ber- Berlin, and that's a they have they're using modern instruments, and Daniel Hope is using a modern violin with steel oh. bound nickel or I can't remember if it's nickel or steel I should know but I'm who cares metal strings, not gut, and he so he sounds much shriller. You can especially, I think, hear it on the switch of the bow, the bow direction where you hear the articulation. It's just harsher. Not in a bad way. It's just more pronounced. Cool. Yep. That's so beautiful. It's fun. It's fun to compare them both because they sound... Oh, and... You can tell they're one and the same and not. Yeah, yeah. And and we're going to talk about some of the... Characteristics. This is a really easy one-to-one comparison. Some of the movements are quite different where mm-hmm. he takes just smaller elements and kind of plays those out. And so we'll talk about some of those techni- techniques later, but uh, let's drink. Yeah, let's drink. So I chose a wine that Emily has asked. I mentioned in a previous episode, we were talking about the Loire Valley and I was like, oh my God, this is one of my favorite grapes. Roma Rontan. 
correct. Yes. So I brought um, a producer that has, along with a few <laughs> others, but he was a, a, a grand impetus for like the actual rise in and you know popularity. People just wanting to seek out, I'll say, Roma Rontan. This is from a producer, Francois Kazan. He works and resides northeast of Tours, not far away from Hervé Viamad, who we just featured on the show, his Pinot Noir. Francois Kazan, he works with Sauvignon Blanc, and he's, you know, got a few different grapes. He, you know, he works with Chenin, he makes a red wine. But just to kind of backtrack, my history with Romo Rontan starts with, I remember when I, I just, you know, my, had my foray into the wine world. This is 2000, I can remember it pretty clearly, 2004. Four, so I'd been in the wine business a couple of years, and I went to this party where everybody was bringing something rare, weird, whatever, and you know people were bringing crazy vintages of like Penfolds Grange, and I remember there were some you know first growth Bordeaux and blah blah blah, and I showed up, one of the few women there, um, I was actually one of two women there, showed up with I was like. Mm, Come have and I brought it with foil around it because I didn't want people to know what it was, and it was this Romo Rontan grape um, from a little-known region at that time called Courchevreny, or people weren't like actively seeking it out. And I people were like, "Oh my God, this is so good!" And I remember applesauce. That's because I used to have to put adjectives to everything. I was like, it just I couldn't. <laughs> and I, I and it was like the one of two wines of the night. And when I took off the the foil people were like, you brought Romo Rontan to the station? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, because I knew everybody bring like these like yeah. measure your appendage yeah. here yeah. with what you're bringing. And so that's how I started, you know, with my love and just I, I find the grape very endearing, uh, Romo Rontan. So if you go just northeast of Tour, you're in the region of Courchevreny, which is Courchevreny and Chevreny are considered the upper Loire, which means we're the far eastern region reaches of the Loire Valley. This is where Sancerre is and, and the like, so opposite of the ocean. And when you see Courchevreny on a label, just like when you see, for white, when you see Bourgogne, it's most likely Chardonnay. You see red Bourgogne, and you know it's Pinot Noir. You <laughs> see red Beaujolais, you're like, that's Gamay. If you see Courchevreny on a label, that's the appellation for Romo Rontan and has just recently actually been created. Courchevreny has only been around since the 90s. And Francois Kazan was one of the producers to champion this grape to say, you know, it's been around for the earliest mentions were the 1800s. But there are stories and myths that go back to the 1500s of Francois I, who wanted to save the grape from extinction and brought it from Burgundy and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So I'll tell you more about Courchevreny later. Okay. Or sh- I mean, I'll just keep going on. Just- I mean, I want to taste it for yeah, crying let's, out let's, Yeah, let's taste it. And Romorontan is a variety that's got a really weird history. We know that Goulet Blanc, which is, I talked about Pinot Noir being like, one of the mother fathers of so yeah. many grapes. Yep. Here, the one of the parents is Pinot Fin Tenturier or something like that, which that parent has a parent that is Pinot Noir. Huh. So this has Pinot Noir as a grandparent wow. from our own town. Even and though then, it's white. Correct. And then as a parent, it has a white grape called Goulet Blanc, which is a mother father grape to so many other grapes. And they don't know whether it was it was likely a mutation, not purposeful. And there are only 150 acres, so 60 hectares in the entire world. Francois Cazan has about, give or take, 10%. And it's very simply made. Ferments in stainless steel with native yeast. We've got about six months in foudre, so in, a, in bigger oak barrels. And then it Goes underground to rest in about for a year in concrete t- tanks um, and bottled, bottled unfiltered. So, wow, concrete. Romo, Rome town. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. Applesauce. Yeah. I still always smell it. Blind taste me on this someday. Someone send me a bottle and be like, this is $5,000. <laughs> and but tell me to blind taste it. And the minute I smell applesauce, and I don't think it's all Romo, Rome town. It's just Kazan's. Always smells like this to me. Fruity and ripe and delicious. I heart Romo. <laughs> and everyone will know it's not Tony Romo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love how the color is reminiscent of Shannon. Like it's got 
it's got an, a little bit of a darker hue than like a Sauvignon Blanc or a Chardonnay. Yep. Um, Very this golden. Is, yeah. Yep. This is, well, I wouldn't, golden to me, I go then to Sauterne. I go to like a dessert wine and I'll, I'll show okay. you a picture of that later. But golden. This to me is like blonde hair from a Disney princess. Interesting. Well, we'll need to we'll need to do some Google imaging because yeah. now I'm curious which one you're talking about. <laughs> to me, this has got this like bruised pear flesh color. Like mm-hmm. it's not white wine like Vigno Verde, yeah, Chardonnay, no. but it's no. not golden like Sauterne or oxidized. It's just got a little bit of a richer hue. And the glycerol when you when you swirl this, you can see like I, I hardly ever talk about legs because I think it's kind yeah. of a stupid concept to talk about. But when you look at, I mean, it's got like thick, thick legs. Like the glycerol content here is pretty off the mm-hmm. charts. Yeah. Um, give it a little taste. Tell me what you think. It's very. I love that you yeah. said ripe because it is just. Yeah, mm, really ripe. But dry. Mm-hmm. And this. Um, Not tannic, but. And you have a friend, Holly, who likes mm-hmm. Riesling mm-hmm. and has just recently found dry, off dry Riesling. This would be something like when you want to like, just push her into the dry camp because it's got <laughs> enough fruit and it's it's unctuous, mm-hmm, but it's not mm-hmm. sweet. Yeah, mm. right. Thank you for I'm I'm pulling the Jimmy Fallon. Thank you, <laughs> Francois Kazan, for having a little esoterica and love in my Venice and palette world. <laughs> okay, what are we listening to before I? Because I'll I'll start talking about reconstitution. But I figure we just drink something good first. Yeah, I like that. Um, yeah, let's just listen to some more of this piece. That's this piece is the whole focus of my conversation for today. I'm not bringing you anything else uh, other than just what I hope will be the delight into your life of this uh, piece by Max Richter. Don't you think? I, I and I want to preface too that definitely not a pejorative because when you say that's all I'm going to focus on, it may sound like that's not a lot. But this is a leaded piece. Well, like, yeah, just remember that Vivaldi's Four Seasons is a set of four violin concertos. Each concerto has three movements, so there's a violin solo with an orchestra for four whole concertos, <laughs> and yeah. and Max Richter reworked all of these. In fact, he did some of them more than once and in different ways, so the whole album is much longer than the actual initial reconstituted Four Seasons in the first place. And that's, he calls it Four Seasons Recomposed, and again, as I said, he did it in 2011. And I mean, to me, it was just such a refreshing way to hear this music. And 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 I love these four concertos. I think they're wonderful. Um, and he addresses this, how it's hard to love something that you hear all the time. And these pieces are heard all the time. Like, for instance, Netflix used it for the fucking chef's table intro. Like, they're not the first ones to use Vivaldi mm-hmm. in their TV show. You know what I mean? So it's not, it's like when when you hear it, you're like, oh, really? Why did you guys choose that? But then when you hear these versions, it's just, it just kind of, it just opens your eyes to hearing them in a different way. And uh, it's really beautiful. So um, Max Richter often composes in a style called minimalism. And so with minimalism, you hear... Uh, there are certain elements of minimalism that you can hear in this music in terms of repeated patterns, uh, drone like drones, maybe a, a bass note that is consistent through or some, something along those lines. Uh, anyway, let's hear some more Max Richter. Where are we going to start? Uh, well, let's like, start with or continue with spring. But... We'll, we'll go back to spring. Yeah. Okay. So so here's the original. And here's the Max Richter. This is really more of an intro than anything. Did you hear it in the background? Yeah. 
So this, remember the birds? Mm -hmm. So if we listen to the birds in this. So this is the original where Vivaldi is talking about the birds bursting into song in spring. And then Max Richter's. See, that's like a Romorontan moment. Like, yeah, like it's so beautiful. Yeah, it's, but you, it's it does yeah, it sound more it does sound more modern though. The, oh yeah. Well, that kind that's because he's doing. Bass. Yeah, because the technique, the harmony is a modern harmony. What he's doing harmonically, yeah. Isn't it just beautiful though? Yeah, it's kind of top forty Enya too. Like, I mean, I, mean, I guess just, if I mean you the, want dr- it, the yeah. drone, just the drone, the bass yeah. kind of quality. Yeah. Maybe maybe Tap Forty is not giving it, doing it justice, but the Enya quality of like very well, it's very consonant. Yep. This is yes. th- that's the yep. mark of minimalism. Often, not always, but often, minimalism mm-hmm. is very consistently consonant. And yeah, I just I love this piece so much. Wow. All right. Yeah. Um. Wow, that's good. <laughs> I know what I'll be listening to on the way home. So I wanted to talk about how it's 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 kind of different and kind of similar, you know, to we try to on scores and fours here have topics that mimic each other and play off each other well, right? And sometimes they're slightly far-fetched. We stretch it a little bit. Yeah. And it's usually th- my fault when that happens. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah. Just you're just making me look good there, Emily Reese. <laughs> um, no, but when I think of reconstitution in wine it you know that could mean a few different things. You know, you'd have to know what I like. I'm going to go into talking about here reverse osmosis. Okay, and it's basically taking wine, so taking Vivaldi Four Seasons, keeping a lot of things the same, and changing certain elements. But those elements are very like it's it's one or two things that you're changing. Okay, whereas obviously Max Richter is changing myriad yes. things, right? Yep. But so in this in this instance, I'm going to talk about um, with reverse osmosis. It can be used for a couple of different things. It can be used to remove alcohol, which is the main thing that it's used for. It can be it can remove volatile acidity as when it's tainted. Some people think that all volatile acidity is a taint. I think you know a little bit's just like salt in the baked good. I mentioned that before. Don't take it out. Don't send it through. Of reverse osmosis machine that's forty four thousand dollars because you just didn't want to put a little sea salt on top of your chalk tube cookie. But I get it, whatever. Okay, so in California and a lot of other places in the world these days, um, the flavor of ripe grapes. I mean, we're go- we're going a little bit away from this now, but for a while there, the flavor of like ultra ripe grapes was like the higher alcohol, hoppier the better. It's kind of like the IPA of the wine world. Okay. And when you have high alcohol, you know, you want these really ripe flavors and you can't really get those without having high alcohol because you're, you're, the sugar in your grapes are, is increasing as the fruit ripens. And so then when you go to ferment it, these yeasts are like, ooh la la, buffet. And they, <laughs> as they eat the sugar, the alcohol just spikes, right? Okay. And so what happens is people take, either they buy a reverse osmosis machine or they send, they ship their wine to, or the reverse osmosis machine comes to their winery. So I'm sorry to interrupt. So this is something like literally they messed up and they want to take out some alcohol? Um, No, it's sometimes they don't mess it up. It can be, but in some, in some cases it's like they just really want those ripe flavors. But they they, don't want the alcohol with it. Yep. Okay. So what they do is they shove this wine through a super, like a hyper small filter and what passes through are like you have your alcohol your your color and your tannin and your 
that stays behind. That doesn't pass through. Okay. And what passes through is water and ethanol, okay? The smallest okay. Mo- molecules in wine. That's called a permeate. Okay. They take their permeate, and then they put that in a still, just like you'd go distill a spirit. Okay. And ethanol boils out at around and vaporizes at between 172 and 175, depending on where you're located in the world and elevation and such. And obviously, water evaporates at a much higher temperature. Yeah. 200 plus, right? So you take out the amount of alcohol that you want, and then you, as this all reconstitutes and you're still, you've got like a very low alcohol to sometimes no alcohol, but a very low alcohol wine. Yeah. You take that, and then you take all of those little things that didn't pass through the filter and put that back in there. Yep. And now you have a wine that, in theory, some acids are stripped too in that process. Okay. Which is... Sad, but whatever. <laughs> um, so then now you have you have your color and your tannin and your acids that you've reblended back with your water and most some alcohol, no alcohol. And then usually you take that batch and dilute your bat bigger batch of wine. Yeah. So now you're you know you can get sometimes a sixteen plus percent alcohol wine and make it fourteen percent alcohol. So. I'm sorry again to interrupt. <laughs> this Please. is so fascinating to me. Is I'm this... gonna chug almost chug wine out of the bottle as I think of how not cool that is. But go ahead. <laughs> is this the same process to make, let's say, a non-alcoholic beer? Is that how they would make an NA beer as well? A, um, a machine, or is it totally different? Because I mean, beer obviously is a different product and mo- no, molecularly. I, um, you know what? That's a great question. It a lot of times it's done in a very, um, with likely. I, I don't want to speak out of turn, but it's likely the following process that I'm going to talk about that can also remove alcohol. Okay. okay. Because it, if you heat up beer once it's beer, you're going to like the flavor compounds and stuff. It's really, okay. as I know it, it's like you want to do it at a lower temperature. I see. Because um, with this, as you said, it has to be 172 or something at least to get the ethanol to boil out. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, but that's a good question. People have talked to me about that process a few times, and I'm yeah. like, I listen, I write it down <laughs> in my notebook, and then I'm like, I don't drink any beer. <laughs> well, because that is different, because they literally are trying to strip as much alcohol out of that as possible then, as opposed to this, where they're just trying to take off a 1% or 2%. Yeah, so I don't know. That's just, one of, that's just one of the, um, and you okay. can do that too to like reduce your sugar level. like you know. And there's a lot of reasons okay. why reverse osmosis like ha- happens for a lot of other food processes or okay. drink processes. Um, but yeah, just... One way that your wine can be reconstituted. Neat. Okay. Interesting. Well, let's listen to more of Vivaldi and Max Richter because it, it really just is. Do you want me to pour you some piece. more Roma Rontan? I sure do. You do now that you learn that. This is uh, a healthy and happy, surprising 15% alcohol. I believe that. Which is, I think, shocking for this region because a lot of times in the Loire Valley, we're getting 11.5 to 14, 13.5% oh. alcohol wine is, you know, I would say that's a norm. 15% is pretty hard to come by. Here, there are areas in his vineyards where he's using, it's not this cuvee, but his old vine wine that he makes has some botrytis, like got some noble rot on it. It's, they're older. And I mean, those cuvees, yeah, I can see where these get higher in alcohol, but 15%, I wasn't expecting that. It doesn't taste hot. No. Maybe he did reverse osmosis. No, he didn't. Francois (laughs) Kazam doesn't play that game. Um, What what I find interesting is we tasted an old Rioja uh, the other day, and that had such a full, rich flavor to it, but felt really thin in my mouth. Mm -hmm. And this does not. This feels, this um, just feels thicker. Ripeness? Glycerol. Glycerol age so with age that dies out too so if we were to age this for 20 years this wouldn't have that content but you could easily take this and this is um like i said 2018 you could put this in the cellar for three four or five years it'd be really fun Mm. so no this is this is a treat thank you yeah of course all right so what do we got next Mm. Pardon me, sorry. I'm drinking. Sorry, yeah, I'm like, what are we listening to next? As <laughs> Emily like savors having, Romo Rontan. I'm just having like the chop, most delightful chop, sip. Emily. <laughs> 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 sorry right. about that. So let's listen to a little bit of Summer, the Summer Concerto. 
Uh, so this is the original. I always air vile in this, and I'm sorry. Like, I'll probably be picked up by the cops one it's point so good. for, like, floating over the center line. I'm like, but I was busy. Yeah. So this is the third movement of the summer concerto. Uh, which is a storm. So we're hearing wind and rain right now, which is super cool. And it's just so wonderful, the Max Richter version. So here we go. Let's hear some of that. Is it the same key? And different meter. Yeah. Yep. So you can hear one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, compared to one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So it's not like, doesn't work that yeah, way, does listen, it? Yeah, let's go back. Compared to... I just head bob this, yep. like um, in Wayne's World style. Yep. Like, and <laughs> we're both just rocking out right now. It's so good. So again, elements of the concerto are here. So good. So good. So good. Let's do another one. Again, again. Yeah. Something else. Something else. <laughs> well, we could, but we're going to listen to all three movements of Autumn because we talked about all oh, three okay, movements Okay, so a good last break. Time. Okay, it's okay. a good break. So okay. that was a little quickie, but um, okay. so, yeah. Well, let's go back to talking about another type of reconstitution. Um so we can add, there are a couple different ways we can talk about things. We can I think I'll go right into the spinning cone. Okay, so I just gave a 35-minute explanation of spinning cones. <laughs> That's not true. And then I was like, oh my god, nobody's gonna understand this. And I was like, Emily, can you please exp like look at this? Look at this. Why am I having such a hard time? So we went online and looked at some spinning cone videos. And Emily said this, and I was like, "Yes, this is why we're partners in this endeavor." Well, Go. I think too because I don't, I don't have the wine terminology and understanding that you do, so it's much easier for me to think of it really simply. So basically, there are <laughs> upside down cones. Like think of a funnel, right? If you're going to funnel something out, so there are these cones that spin, and you pour the wine pours into the top cone, and as the cone spins, the 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 liquid pushes up and over the cone into the cone below it, right? So it just every keeps other, spilling down. Every other cone spins. Okay, yep. perfect. And as the liquid is being uh, spun down this whole column of cones, the uh, ethanol and water, I believe, are evaporating off in this some type of vacuum, low temperature environment. And that helps that's that's the, the basic gist that i that i got from it yeah so that's how it's removed as opposed to boiling it out it's like spun out in a much lower temperature yeah well mm -hmm. it and it still needs to be it's distilled in the process right like once it gets to a certain point but yeah i mean so thank you emily for explaining <laughs> spinning cones i guess <laughs> another way to get rid of alcohol and yeah. look at it online because it's fascinating that it like is. that kind of technology is obviously more for bigger brands, yeah. Nine ninety nine dollar bottles of Shiraz or whatever. That it's not bad. It just helps mm -hmm. keep. There's so many reasons why people would say like, well, why don't you want a lot of alcohol and wine? Like that's great. Well, you have to. The higher the alcohol is, the more you have to pay tax on it. A, mm -hmm. B. You know, there are reasons why you'd want a non-alcoholic wine if you're, mm -hmm. you know, wanted to have wine or for people. Or low alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. Or just low lower alcohol. So. Mm -hmm. um, well, and plus, can't aren't there wines that have rules about how much alcohol is in them? So then, wouldn't Absolutely. a big, huge commercial producer want to remove some alcohol? So they're in the yes. rules. Yeah. Yes. Just lots of reasons. Go go invest in those forty thousand dollar pieces of equipment so that you can fit within your Appalachian rules. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll explain one more, 
And then we'll get to maybe some more anecdotes about Romorontan and Autumn. I love it. Yeah. All right. So one is called an ion exchange. Wow. This is all so scientific. Yeah. I mean, basically, didn't you see that video? There's yeah, more stainless steel in there and we know what to do with. Yeah. Um, you have to wear like a hairnet just to get into that place. Um, all right. So... Uh, one problem that people can have with wine is high pH, so very low acidity. And with wine, you want to have enough acidity because if you don't, you can have, it can be a petri dish for bacteria. Hmm. It can seem flabby and not refreshing. And so one way that you can get rid of that is by, or or I shouldn't say get rid of that, one way you can like supplement without adding acid that you can have higher acid wine. <laughs> All of this is so out of my vocabulary. It's amazing. <laughs> Emily's like, you have, but you have so much knowledge of wine and all these things. And I'm like, but I never talk about ion exchangers because it's just not my MO. Okay, so you've got a column that you fill with resin beads. And these resin beads can be made of different types of resin. Well, like, just don't. Don't even ask me all the different types of resin <laughs> shit. Don't even go there. This is no time for questions because this is so highly depending on the company, sure, depending sure. on the person okay. that's, you know, well, like wood resin, right? Like, yes. You've got all these different types of resonated beads that are charged with certain solutions, different ions, plus, minus, different quantities of plus, minus yeah. to end up, you know, to deal with the task at hand. And so, like, if you want to lower your pH, make a higher acid wine, mm -hmm. you could add a bunch of acid to it, but then you'd end up with something that maybe tasted, like, super out of balance or, like, a really, like, a lemonade without any sugar. You know, you'd be left with something that you're like, this isn't tasteless, this is really yeah. too sour. So, there's this guy who, I won't mention his name, but he was a wine, he's a winemaker that decided to, like, make his own resin mix. Okay. And then he charged it with a solution of sulfuric acid, and then he rinsed, rinsed that out so that the result was when he poured the wine through the column and the beads, the potassium ions were absorbed <laughs> and into the beads, and the hydrogen from the charged resin went into the wine, and then it, like, raised his acid level and he was left with like this wine that tasted like a refreshing wine, which if you were to taste the wine, you'd probably be like, this is delicious. This is yeah. fun. This is appropriately yeah. from wherever. Yeah. So just to let people know that you can pass your wine through resonated beads charged with different solutions of less or more yeah. ions yeah. to change the constitution of your texture. So, okay. <laughs> With wine, it to me, that's just so ridiculous because, as I've learned over the last year and a half, uh, there is so much delicious natural wine that has not been fucked with like that. So much delicious wine out there. With wine, it just seems like there's no need for that. There's yeah, no, but there's that's, no need that's for because that. of this podcast that you're we're having this conversation. <laughs> because like you're right, you're you right. You know, like people get used to spending. Six ninety nine, nine ninety nine, twelve ninety nine for yeah, wine. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So then, all of a sudden, when you're like, "Well, fifteen ninety nine, no, you got to spend sixteen or eighteen or twenty one ninety nine. Yeah. And then instead of you know, you drink less, but you drink better. Yes. Some people don't want to drink less or drink better, right? And so, yeah. m most of the time, that's not to say that they're not reverse osmosising, spin coning, like ion exchanging with very expensive wines because yeah. they are. Yeah. But a lot of this is reserved for. You know, the huge that macro are really needing consistency because of their client base. And okay, well, I and understand. If, and, and if they ship this wine to these various companies that perform this because they don't want to have a hundred thousand dollar reverse osmosis, yeah, like type of type of equipment, yeah, that they you know if they ship it and it gets ruined in the process of shipping it because it's hot out, yeah, they just freaking find a way to fix that. You know what I mean? I was in this vineyard um, in the in this winery, I should say in the northern part of Spain in the Chacolí region. I was very excited to to taste the wine because they have a very highly regarded restaurant, and I'm not going to go any further than that. But it's like many figures to eat at this restaurant, and then their winery next door 
I, I was like, I'm so excited to visit it because I wanted, you know, heard a lot about it. And the first thing the guy said was like, do you want to go upstairs and see the winery with all the lights off? Because it was like just so much stainless steel and they had these like black lights or whatever. And I was like, okay. And then we went back down. He's like, do you want to see my reverse osmosis machine? Because it's so awesome. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, of, co- of course I want to see that. Yeah, like, I yeah, want to yeah. know. Yeah. So I, I went and looked at it and he was like, I asked him, I was like, can I taste? Can I taste some wine that's like run through this versus not run through this? Mm-hmm. Whoa. Really? Woof. Really? That I, big of a stop, difference? You know what? I'm just going to sit my Kazan over here and I'm going to let you talk more about autumn. Because <laughs> now we're getting into the Dionysian part of the yes, we are. symphony that I love. Concerto. 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 Yeah, concerto. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's listen to a, a little bit of autumn. This is... I, I'd say this is the most famous of the concertos. They're also famous. Who knows? Let's just listen to a little bit of the original. So, Max Richter. See, he drops beats again. Yeah. We're just in a rush to get there. What's the issue? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I mean, maybe it's like the porron, where you're like, well, we could just get there if we go here. I'm trying to think of the Venice reasons to do that. Like, why why would he drop beats? Even though it's like, because I think here's, it's as beautiful and it's very yeah. creative, why would he? Here's what I think. This is me just being me with my own brain. This is how I think this kind of thing Scary. happens. I know. And great. And, and this is also how I think a composer composes something like a theme and variations. Because this is how it happens in my brain. That doesn't mean at all this is how it happens universally. But when I Emily, have... It probably doesn't. It probably doesn't. But when I have a theme stuck in my head... For instance, if I've got the first four measures of this uh, autumn concerto in my head, just repeating like an earworm, we call it, where it's just going over and over and over again, eventually that theme starts to mutate in my head and I start Mm. to vary it in ways. And then four hours later, I'll have a completely brand new melody in my head that came from whatever was stuck in there in the first place. And so I always think when I hear something like this, that that's what happened to Max Richter. As he was ruminating over this piece, that's how he ended up hearing it. And he liked it, so we put it down on paper. Could be totally wrong, but that's just how I've always assumed that happens because it's such an interesting approach to the original to, to kind of drop eighth notes here and there like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's just kind of what it turned into in his head and... And do you think that that has anything to do with, you know, it sounds like the key is is different. If he were to keep it in the yeah. same key and do that, then it would be like too close to the original to be able to do something like that? Or um, I don't know. I would imagine that the reason he changed the keys on most of these, if not all of them, I honestly haven't listened to them each back to back to know, and I don't have perfect pitch, so I can't make that assessment on my own without doing that kind of comparison. But... Baroque orchestras are often in a different intonation anyway than modern orchestras. So that could be what we're hearing as a different key, but they literally could be in the same key. That's actually my oh, assumption. True. So I change all my answers from, from before. But but um, that's probably what's going on here because it's only a half a step or so off, yeah. which probably is more indicative of the fact that the Baroque orchestra is tuning to a different yeah note than what the modern orchestra is tuning to. I also wondered, like, okay, if you're going to start making changes to some of the most classical and popular music of our time, Mm -hmm. well, not of our time, of ever, like, 
you know, maybe if you just do it a few steps higher, that people, yeah. it's like, it's like seems more like there's a slight bit more of elation. Well, so it's, you can get it's away a brighter with it. sound. Yeah. Just naturally when you raise a key, that's so going to be, like, be brighter. So people be like, oh, listen yep. to that. Yep. Instead it of being like, a little more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you raise that down two half steps and people will be like, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I don't know. Let's listen to more Autumn. All right. All right. So here's my, the hunting. Yeah. Because so, we learned in the previous episode that I love me a good hunting song. And so let's listen to the original. It's so good. All right, here's the Max Richter version. He manages to capture the joy of that movement in just these little nuggets. Isn't that great? Well, I feel like I'm hunting for squirrels on a reality show. It's like like someone's gonna get eliminated and they like <laughs> <laughs> That's so fun. I blame media for that because this music is better than that, you know? Yeah. Like that right there. The drony thing, yeah. And it's like the predictable drone. It's very hopeful sounding. Yep, and, yeah. yep. Mm -hmm. It's great. That's great. That's so be It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. All right, what do you got? And then we'll listen well, to one more. Maybe two more. <laughs> um, I don't really have anything else, I guess, specifically to discuss. Do you have any questions about, um, you know, the, the the actually? Let's focus on. Well, I was going to say reconstitution or Roma Rontan. Well, I want to talk producer. about Roma Rontan because because you know you mentioned how much you love this grape. You really haven't said why. You've just said you love it. So you know you smell applesauce, blah blah blah. But what brings you so much joy from this grape? Grape varietal, if I'm to talk like I'm from your world for a minute. <laughs> um, well, I think that I have the fortunate journey and pleasure to taste a lot of new grapes. And whether they're hybrids, you know, made in Vermont that are in a, or Quebec, Quebec in a really cool fashion, or obscure grapes from... You know, the Loire Valley, South Africa, what have you. I just think that this has a lot of, there's history, there's myth, there's a lot of, there are unknowns. It tastes classic, like you can taste where it's from. This isn't, doesn't taste like Roma Rontan grown in the Barossa Valley in Australia or something, right? It's very of a place. Um, and it does just remind me of, Whenever I smell it and I taste it, it does remind me of, like, my beginnings. And so I think when I kind of link the two, it's just a kind of a nice a nice conjunction. I also, um, the 1998 Roma Rontan from Brendan Tracy, a barrel that he forgot in his cellar um, that he is... He forgot? Well, I shouldn't say he forgot. Uh, the person who made it forgot it, and when he, like assumed the duties in this winery, bought this winery, whatever. There was a I barrel see. of forgotten, thank you for clarifying, okay. Roma Rontan, and it was suval, which means it was under a veil of floor or of wine, oh, yeah. which is that yeast film that gives a lot of flavors to wine, protects wine um, from oxidation in a barrel that's not topped up with wine to prevent that. And I just couldn't believe that Roma Rontan has these like so many faces that we it, there's so many possibilities I've tasted sweet versions not sweet versions and I think that this is just the beginning it's a long-winded answer but I think no, it's a great answer yeah 
There's a lot of cool Romorantan yet to be experienced. Good. So shall we winter? Tiny bit more winter. That's winter. I... And also with winter too, it's great to listen to winter songs when it's 94 degrees in Minneapolis because we're like, <laughs> I know, trotting through the snow. And we did at the beginning listen to the first movement of winter because that's what's used for chef's table. So we'll listen to the second movement, which if I'm not mistaken, is your personal favorite movement of all of the uh, four seasons and it's a goodie. So oui, oui. let's listen to the original. This version that we're listening to, we're listening to the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra like we were uh, in the episode pr- prior to this. And um, this is speedy. This is a this is quick. Mm-hmm. A lot of orchestras take this particular movement much slower than this. So this is a little surprising to hear it so, uh, so speedy, but I, uh, it's nice. So there's, that's what the original sounds like. Okay. Well, that already sounds too cold. <laughs> Burr. Burr. What I love about it, though, it's such a sweet melody, just endearing. It's like you want to give that melody a hug, you know? And I, I love how he captures that quality here. And his choice, too, of, like, the the background mm-hmm. sounds like icicles. So beautiful. So pretty. I highly recommend, highly, highly, highly recommend. It's it's so possible that you know a lot of this music well enough to be able to just listen to Max Richter's version and still get something from it. You'll hear things that are familiar to you, and that's one of the things that's beautiful about it. I really love this piece. And with that piece of advice, my sage advice would be don't go into your local wine shop and be like, can I get some reconstituted wine? It's been shoved through a spinning cone. Ask for some Romorontan because it will... Mm -hmm. Um, it'll brighten your brighten your spirits, whether mm-hmm. it's a hot day or a cold day. To scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours, and we're on Instagram at scoresandpours. If you like the show, it's not free. Music isn't free, and wine is not free. So consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc., 